welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. I hate the people who talk about it all the time, so I didn't want to be one of those people. From two guys who study the markets as a passion. Can I count on you to talk me off the ledge, partner? Yes, and that's what this podcast is for. And trade for all the right reasons. That's my due diligence. I'm in. Dude, if you're in, I'm in. A line of thinking is the higher the volatility on an asset, the higher the volatility on the opinions. So I feel like you have crazies on both sides. Here's your host of Animal Spirits, Michael Batnick. I can say that I was never driven by money. So you were trading three times leveraged ETFs for the love of the game. Exactly, man. <laughs> I, I'm a purist. But anyway. <laughs> and Ben Carlson. This is true. I do not drink coffee. I've never been on Facebook. I've never done fantasy football. Oh, one last thing. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Now, today's show. So Bill Gross has been the beneficiary of a 30-year bond bull market, leading some people to suggest that the wind was at his back and he might not be that skilled of a bond manager, but he was in an environment where yields went from 15% down to two, so he could really do no wrong. But there were a lot of other bond managers managing managing bonds in the 80s that didn't turn out to be Bill Gross. So what do you think of the idea that investing has gotten a lot harder but if we were around in the 80s, we surely would have been Bill Gross. He just got lucky. I think that there's obviously always this, an element of skill and luck involved in any of this stuff. But obviously, he's one of the people who took advantage, like you say. So I, I think it's it's hard to separate the two. Obviously, he invested in one of the great bond bull markets of all time, probably that we'll ever see. You could say that for a lot of hedge fund managers that came up in that time, too, that they had the wind to their back. They had the competition was much less than it was, but they still took advantage of it. But getting back to the idea of now being one of the harder times to invest, I think that that's probably true for a number of reasons. The competition's higher. There's more people out there. The you know the valuations are higher. Interest rates are lower. But I don't think that takes away from what he did at all. Yeah. So there was a recent chart going around the number of CFAs per stock. And that number has just been going up and up and up and up over time. So I think it's it's not black and white. It's obviously a lot more nuanced than that. But there were a lot of managers, like I said, in the 80s that turned out to not to be Bill Gross. So I actually did did a few CFA talks in the last couple of months, and I used that that chart in my presentation, the number of CFAs per stock. And it just, yeah, it's gone up ever since the 90s. It, it gets a lot of laughs at that from that crowd. But it's it's kind of funny because... Everyone in those rooms assumes that, you know, I went through this program, I'm well-educated, I should probably be doing pretty well with my investments, but there's there's just so many people out there these days that, that it makes it so much harder, and I think it's just going to get harder from here, too. Right, so investing is a game of relative skill, not absolute skill, as we know. Yes, exactly. And speaking of bond kings, a week ago, Jeff Gunlock tweeted, the moment of truth has arrived for secular bond bull market." need to start, I'm sorry, exclamation point, need to start rallying effective immediately or obituaries need to be written. Talk about the difference between being a portfolio manager and being in portfolio management. I actually wrote about this. This must have been a couple of years ago now. But I, you know, I think these are the types of calls that portfolio managers kind of have to make, or at least they, they think they do. 
But the thing with that is that they can change their mind on a dime and it, it really won't affect them because there's a difference between what these people say in public and how their portfolios are positioned. But, you know, the idea of someone running a fund is much different than someone who's actually managing a portfolio of different asset classes and strategies. So this is a book that I know that we both like. I stole this from Adam Smith, who wrote in The Money Game, which was what, in the 1960s? 1960s. Yeah, you're the one who put me onto that yeah, book. Speaking of, I think, um, I think that I'm ready to declare that my favorite investment book ever written. Yeah, it's, it's really good. So he has a line there where he says, you know, security analysts dog down information and come up with an idea about what should be bought or sold but they don't necessarily make good conductors for the whole orchestra. And so I think that's a way to think about this. You know, whether you agree with what Gunlock or any of these portfolio managers say, you know, you have to think think about it in terms of what they're saying and why and what you're doing and why. So ch- making changes to the security level selection is much different than making changes to a portfolio. So these sort of bond and bull bear market calls while interesting, are not very useful for most investors. Yeah. So who knows if if Gunlock is acting on what he's saying, but he has had some really funky, interesting calls that were probably mocked at the time that turned out really, really well. In 2013, he said to short Apple and go long natural gas. Do you remember that one? Yes, of course. I put it on my portfolio three times. So that trade was in the money from day one and was never negative. So that was pretty spectacular. And then he also said to short Chipotle, which I think he was on the wrong side of that for a little while. But as we've seen recently, Chipotle has come crashing down. So obviously, Jeff Gunlick is not short of Chipotle in his total return fund. But nevertheless, he's certainly a, an interesting fellow. So I think the, the idea of listening to portfolio managers, because these guys are way more in the news these days than they were in the past. So these guys used to be very secretive and not talk very much. And now, you know, every day there's a new call from a hedge fund manager or a portfolio manager or someone. And I think it's a good reminder for investors. It's it's almost like the difference between, you know, entertainment and advice. So if you're watching financial television, I think you have to go in with the right mindset. And that's whether you're following someone on Twitter or reading something they wrote in a news clip or whatever it is. And trying to understand, you know, is this person talking their own book or talking about themselves or are they talking to me personally? And obviously, the just like these portfolio managers have no idea who you are, it, the same thing applies to people on financial television. And the job of the networks, as we know, is is to be loyal to their shareholders. And the way that they make money is to sell advertisements, not to make you a better investor. Right. So people get mad at the people on CNBC and Bloomberg and Fox Business about what they say, but they're not talking to you personally. They're just giving their opinion and, and they have to fill that airtime. So it's not like they're they're giving you advice for your 401k. They're just, like you said, they're, they have a job to do and that's what they're doing. And sticking with the bond theme, there was an article last week from Bloomberg talking about unconstrained bond funds, which was all the rage in, I think, late 2013, early 2014, after the taper tantrum. And we haven't really heard much about it since. But in the article, somebody wrote, one of our investment beliefs is that predicting interest rates is extremely challenging and that very few people have been able to do it consistently. Obviously, you and I would agree with that. And taking a step further, you could replace interest rates with literally anything because predicting the future is... (laughs) Inherently, a very difficult thing to do. Tell us more about your beliefs, please. Yeah, and I, I so we've whenever I would meet with fund managers back in the day, it was always I was always I would always laugh when they would roll out their quote unquote best ideas portfolio. <laughs> it's like, why aren't you using your best ideas everywhere else? You're using your not best ideas, and obviously it's because they would have a more concentrated version or something. But it, it never made sense to me because first of all, 
these people don't even really know what their best ideas are. You know, before if they knew what their best ideas were, they would put all their money in them and not invest anywhere else. Correct? Right. I guess it's I guess it's their highest conviction. But yeah, but fourteenth best idea just doesn't roll off the tongue. True. And I think that the other thing about the unconstrained thing, it sounds really sexy in a pitch. Like we can go anywhere. We're you know we can invest in any any sector or strategy, or we can go long or short. The problem with having no constraints is that it's really hard to measure. So. First of all, what's the bogey going to be? What's the benchmark? And, and second of all, how do you find it? And how do you then understand what the risk is compared to that bogey? Yeah. So I think that's where a lot of investors have... It, it sounds great in theory, but that's where a lot of investors run into problems with these things. My personal benchmark for this year is the VIX, and I am doing extremely well. <laughs> Way to go. So yesterday, Franklin Templeton announced, uh, Eric Balchunas tweeted, Franklin Templeton just vanguarded the whole world, literally, launching dirt cheap country ETFs this week, three to four times cheaper than peers, nine basis points. So you hear three to four times cheaper than peers, but then you see the spread. It's, you know, where does this end? Are we going to see negative fees for ETFs? By the way, before we get into that, can we talk about the fact that you can now use a company name as a verb? So vanguarded. I saw the other day that someone got Amazoned. Yeah, I didn't know. Th- I didn't know this was a thing. Can we say that we Ritholtz someone? <laughs> what does that imply? Uh, let's not go there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> true. Okay. Anyway, yeah. No, I think it, it makes. Sense. I mean, it's like this is the best thing that could happen to individual investors, probably in some ways. I mean, investing is going to be free if it's not already. It's a rounding error. So, in the grand scheme of things, it's great. But, you know, at a certain point, does it really matter? No. I mean, I think at this point, it's more of a distraction. If you're managing billions of dollars, then a few basis points makes a huge difference. But for normal people, whether you're in a country ETF at 22 basis points or nine basis points, like honestly, that is not changing your life at all. Right. And the the thing is, especially with these type of ETFs, people are using these to trade them and to make make an implicit bet somewhere. They're not using them for long-term investing more you know more than likely in in most cases so unfortunately the access to these things is great but the number of choices we have now is going to make it really hard for people to actually invest the right way because they're just going to be hopping around and so the behavior ends up being way more expensive than the expense ratio yeah wasn't there a study that front load funds cause people to behave better because they had already paid the 5% up front and wanted to like really get their money's worth, so they tended to hold on to it longer. Makes sense. And I mean, that's that's one of the the pros people give about investing in something like private equity or venture capital, Right. that you have no choice but to be locked up for 10 or 15 years. Obviously, there's a lot of downsides to that too, that illiquidity. But I, I think having that sort of constraint in place can be helpful. Yeah, so there was another article, The Future Price of Investing Zilch. I think this was from Bloomberg also. Of the $738 billion that investors put into index funds and ETFs in the past 12 months, $509 billion went to funds costing 0.1% or less. Quote, investors are really cost-obsessed, so these asset managers are betting that if they lower fees, they'll make a little money because they'll get all the assets. And that's from, also from Eric Balchunas. So we are just in a wild time. The asset management business is not a place that I would like to be right now. I honestly think people in that business are totally underestimating what's coming down the pipe in a few years. Like I think there could be massive amounts of people out of the asset management business in the years to come, especially as these other places... You know, this is Franklin Templeton getting into this as places like Fidelity get more into 
index funds and ETFs, the the number of bodies needed at these places is not going to be nearly as high. I think that there's a huge reckoning coming in the asset management industry in like the decade ahead. Yeah. So Josh has has written about this. The reason why there's no euphoria, even though there might be euphoria or complacency or whatever, is because this is the only bull market that hasn't been led by Wall Street, because people are so afraid of being replaced by, not machines, but by low-cost products, um, and I guess machines to a certain extent. Well, yeah, and, and everyone's getting beat by the index funds, the, what are the, the 5, hey, 10, speak for yourself. 15 speak years. Speak for yourself, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, your bogey is the VIX, so... Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the you know 90% of active management funds over the last 3, 5, 10, 15 years have have lost index funds. So it's kind of like if you can't beat them, join them, everyone's thinking, which you know works until it doesn't. But Yeah, Fidelity International had an interesting article, and Abigail Johnson was very anti-ETFs, but now she is forced to make some hard decisions. And one of the things that they're doing, not Fidelity, but Fidelity International, is instituting fulcrum freeze. So they're going to lower the fee on some of their active products and institute performance fees, which I think is a really good idea. Like, I don't, they have to stop the bleeding somehow. Yeah, no, I give them credit for that too. I think that the old way of just charging one or one and a quarter for a mutual fund that is a closet index and is not going to do very well for you, just it doesn't make any sense. So I think doing some sort of performance fee, you know, does make sense and, and people shouldn't be penalized when they underperform. Yeah, and you, you've written about this in the past. Maybe we won't get too far into it right now, but does it really matter for long-term investors whether you're in a mutual fund that underperforms an index fund by 40 basis points a year? Like, I think the much, much, much bigger danger is being out of the market entirely. Right. That's Yeah, my point was that you could have been in a very suboptimal mutual fund for since 2009 and still done okay for yourself and made some money. Whereas if you listen to your favorite permabear and went to cash or have been holding a bear market fund since that time, you know, you've probably lost money or haven't made any. So that asset allocation decision is, is you know, three quarters of the way there if you just are in the market, yeah. even if you're in a suboptimal fund. Yep. So the $15 trillion asset management, active asset management industry is definitely dead. Is it $15 trillion or did I just completely make that up? <laughs> it's, you know, it sounded right to me. We don't have a stat checker here, so I think we'll just go with okay, it. Okay, $15 I saw, trillion. I saw, <laughs> with a T. I saw a cool poll on Twitter this week. I don't know who wrote it, but I wanted to ask you this one. I thought it was kind of an interesting question. So it said, what would be harder on you emotionally? A 25% drawdown that lasts a month or a 15% drawdown that lasts a whole year? So I assume the 25% one, you'd draw down and you'd, you'd come back pretty quick and be back to even. So which would be harder on you psychologically? Hmm. I thought this was an inter- interesting question. Uh... I think the 25% drawdown in a month would be really, really scary. What do you think? Right. So it's basically, yeah, so it's basically a 1987 situation. Yeah, actually, or, I don't even think that's close. If you're in a, if you're in a 50% drawdown over one year, like, big fucking deal. That happens all the time. Right. Yes, that's true. Right. I agree. Yeah, I think that people would, would panic much greater in the 25% situation. That's fair. Did you read Brent B. Shore's, his company is called, and I don't know if it's, Adventure S Adventures. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but they did an incredible post over the weekend on Amazon. Did you get a chance to look at that? Yeah, it was like a what 30, 35 page PDF. Yeah, it's really worth taking the time. So we pulled some amazing statistics on Amazon, and Amazon really is disrupting not just every industry, it's disrupting fundamental analysis. There's really no way to analyze 
Amazon. So a few of the stats that were really compelling. The company has more than 100 million square feet of distribution center space just in the U.S. 73% of 30-day trial subscribers convert for the first year of membership, 91% renew for a second year, and 96% renew for a third year. That is insane. Um, Would you ever cut the cord with Amazon? No, it is so intertwined in my life that (laughs) it's the Prime stuff and we watch the Prime video. I mean, anytime I need anything, the first place I check is Amazon because it's just so convenient. So I just, I I read B. Shore's report and his company's report was sweet. I just finished a couple months ago, the Everything Store, which is a few years old, but it's, it's basically the behind the scenes of how Amazon got started. So my favorite a little anecdote, which I tweeted out. So in 97, right when they started the company and went public, Bezos flew out to Harvard Business School to give a presentation. And he basically said, here's our business model. And this is when they were still just selling books, but he was giving like, here's where we're taking this thing. We want to like take over retail. And some kid at Harvard Business told him like, hey, listen, you sound like a really nice guy, <laughs> but so don't take this the wrong way. But I really think you just need to sell it to Barnes and Noble and get out now. Mm. And Bezos actually said like, yeah, you could be right. But he said that I think you underestimate the degree to which the established brick and mortar businesses do things the same way and won't change. And I think there's a huge parallel there to the investment industry because it's like a lot of these places, things have always gone this way and we've always done this way. So why change now? Why cannibalize an existing business? You know, because, well, we've already done it this way and it it works. Yeah. That's an incredible story. When Amazon went public in 1997, they were a little bit smaller than Barnes and Noble. And now I think they're like a thousand times bigger or 10,000 or a hundred thousand times bigger, whatever it is. It's like it's insane. Yeah, and we both we both looked at the, the new Scott Galloway book where he predicts that Amazon will be the first trillion dollar company. Yeah, I think it, the market cap is only like five hundred billion. Yeah, it's a little less than it's like four hundred fifty billion. So they and so Apple has them by fifty percent now. They're like seven hundred fifty billion. So it's it's kind of an interesting take on it. I normally don't do this, but I'm going to put a timestamp out there. Amazon will not okay. get above six hundred forty seven billion dollars. That is the ceiling. <laughs> okay. So another thing, uh, something that is that a stop for your Amazon valuation yeah. short. Yeah, that's my stop. So (laughs) another thing that people have pointed out to, screaming, Amazon doesn't make any money. How are they worth, you know, 30 times sales? And I made that up. Whatever the number is. But this is pretty incredible. Between And this is also from Brent Bishore's piece over the weekend. Between 2008 and 2016, Amazon paid $1.6 billion in federal taxes, while Walmart paid $64 billion. That is crazy. Holy shit. That's the big question for everyone is, is when does the government step in? And and I, I wrote about this last week too. That was from, from Galloway's book. He's saying, you know, the government's going to step in at some point and realize Amazon is putting all these people out of business. What was the stat from your post that you wrote about how many retailer cashiers are there in the country? Three million? Three million. Yeah. It's like it's like more more cashiers in the country than, than teachers, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. So do you think that Amazon is a monopoly because... They are crushing everybody, but traditionally, monopolies have pricing power where they could just gouge and their competitors and their customers and the suppliers can't really do anything about it. Whereas with Amazon, it seems like it's the exact opposite. They can keep lowering and lowering and lowering prices and putting out businesses that way. Yeah, it's definitely got to be one of the most unique large companies ever created because it's they're they're almost causing deflation if you if you really thought about it they're <laughs> it would be funny if the government tried to step in and break them up because they're making things more convenient and cheaper for people 
but if that's affecting other businesses, then you know who knows where that takes us. And sticking with tech stocks, on Friday, October, whatever the day was, it was a crazy day for tech stocks. The Wall Street Journal wrote that Amazon gained 13%, Google gained 4%, Microsoft gained 6%, and Intel gained 7%. The surge in those shares added a collective $146 billion in market value to the companies. That one-day rise eclipsed the entire value of IBM at $143 billion. Is this like is this 1999 or 2000? So I ran some numbers recently for the NASDAQ 100 ETF, the QQQ, which we're both fairly familiar with. So it's up every year since 2009. Annual returns have been like 21% per year in that time. Man. So it's it's so it's killed the S&P 500 and I ran the numbers just because of the, the largest holdings. So Amazon has a 42% annual return since 2009. Apple is 36% Google is like 25%, so not much higher than the index, but it's crazy. I mean, people have been calling for a tech bubble 2.0 for the last, I don't know, 15 years, I guess. I guess it's bound to happen at some point. Pretty insane. So our friend Meb Faber just wrote a piece on dividends. Did you get a chance to look at that? Yes. Yes. He sent it to, he sent the white paper to our secret investing Slack channel, and I did take a look at that. All right. So two of the things that Meb said was, I was curious whether we could create a strategy that replicated a dividend strategy's total return and outperformance, but without the actual dividend. Then also, he said, I would argue that dividends have developed a great brand. So what Meb did with the help of our friends at Alpha Architect was he ran a bunch of different composites. So top 100 equal weight stocks, exit top 25% of dividend payers, and top 100 equal weight X all divs. And after taxes, these strategies actually do much better than, than the dividend paying ones, which, which in turn did better than the index. But I will slightly take the other side of this because I think Meb hit on this in the post that there is such a behavioral bias with dividends that people love nothing more than to see their dividends come in. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that high dividends strategies are like a good way to get exposure to the value premium. But I love when I get dividends because it gives me flexibility and it feels like, like, wow, I'm getting paid just to own American companies and international companies. And I love having the flexibility to take that and do whatever I want with it. So while it is very tax inefficient, the behavioral aspect is really hard for people to overcome. Right. It might not be rational because if you just took a, a strategy that performed the same as a dividend strategy and you could just sell your shares and create your own dividends. But I think a lot of people also think about dividends from the perspective of it's actually cash flow in their hands. So I think a lot of people just really distrust the corporate world and the finance world. And they think if, if these companies are actually paying cash out to them, that it's actually a real return instead of just seeing a paper gain in selling. That's a little gold buggy for me. <laughs> Um, I just, I just love coming from the guy who owns GLD. Yeah, but I'd I, like to point out. Yes, it's true. But yeah, there was a huge behavioral thing where I, I just, I love seeing my dividends come in every quarter. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And and again, it's just it, it's it sort of gets you in that frame of mind as I'm getting these returns. That's kind of what I'm getting at. It again, it may not be rational, but I agree. And and I'm sure that there's there's probably I don't think there's ever been studies done that I've seen, but. I'm sure that there is something with the fact that if a fund has the name income in it or dividend, I'm sure more people probably buy it, especially when you get into the retiree stage. People just screen for that. Yes, of course. Yeah, especially retirees who who think in terms of income and not total return. It, you know, those that's a huge thing for them is 
is just, you know, this is what I want. I want to see yes. regular income coming in. So the math is what it is. So I'm not disagreeing with the uh, conclusion that Meb drew, but good luck launching a hundred stock portfolio without any dividends. And I don't think he's trying to do that because he understands that that'd be a very tough proposition. Yep. Agreed. So I just read a book called The Improv and this guy, Bud Friedman, who I had never heard of, was like the Lauren Michaels of comedy clubs. So he started a place in the late 60s in New York, and then he took it to L.A. And so in the book is is stories about Ronnie Dangerfield and Andy Kaufman and Richard Pryor and all the classic comedians that we love. So this is a, a piece from the book that I thought you would like. Another time, I remember being with Rodney at Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira's apartment for Passover. They lived in a gorgeous building on the Upper West Side, not far from me, and every year they had a Seder. It was wonderful, and they'd invited 30 or 40 people, some of whom weren't even Jewish. One year, Rodney was there drinking martinis, and by the time dinner was served, he'd had about six of them. <laughs> then the next thing we knew, he'd passed out, <laughs> face down, at the Stiller's dining room table. He was completely <laughs> obliterated, but none of us did anything as we continued eating for about another hour. <laughs> Good usage of the word obliterated there. That's that's pretty good. We, yeah, we're both huge comedy fans, and maybe sometime we'll, we'll share our story about going to see Judd Apatow together. But that may be. A, I wonder uh, if that's like a. Time. I wonder if that's like a you had to be there type of thing. Yeah, it could be. But yeah, we're both huge comedy fans, and and that this sounds like a book that I I want to get to too. So that's yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It was an easy read, very low energy output. So highly recommend that book. So why don't we stop here? This is a good place to end it. You can subtweet us at animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Uh, I'm Michael Batnick on Twitter, at Michael Batnick. And Ben, your handle is a wealth of CS. Yes, the worst handle on Twitter. But yeah, get a hold of us, send us your questions. We'll be reading uh, reader questions in the future and give us feedback on how we're doing here and anything else you'd like to see from the show. We're always happy to entertain any any thoughts from, uh, from the listeners. All right, we'll see you Thanks next week. Listening.